so with that, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting what we're going into as far as Scripture is concerned. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Great Possessions. Great Possessions. And uh, we're going to learn about how it is that in one moment Jesus is looking at the children, how it is that the disciples actually rebuke the parents of the children as they're brought to Jesus to be blessed by him. And it gives Jesus an opportunity to teach in that moment. And then what follows is an example of that very thing. And so let's begin by reading in Mark chapter 10. We're in Mark chapter 10 and beginning in verse 13. So Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask for your blessing, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would give us understanding of your word. That we may see and understand, Lord, clearly the message that you have for us, the details perhaps ministering to us in specific areas of our lives. Help us with this knowledge to be wise, Lord, to understand how it is that we are to approach you. What it is that's required of us that we may know salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ and what keeps us from that. And so, Lord, we commit this time of study into your hands, Lord. Again, we ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark records the time when the people were bringing their children to Jesus and they were bringing their children to Jesus for Jesus to bless them. You see, they had seen enough to believe that Jesus was the one to bless them. If we go back and just name a few things that they had heard about or experienced firsthand... We know that on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had commanded the wind and the sea to be calm, simply saying, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. In the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus had cast out a demon from the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to heal her. In the region of the Decapolis, Jesus heals a man who was deaf. Not to mention Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. We also have the, the account of Jesus healing the blind man in Bethsaida. Jesus heals a boy who was demon-possessed. I think with just the mention of these few events. We see how it is that Jesus had proven without a shadow of a doubt, should have been at least in the, the minds and the hearts of the people, that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the one who has the power and the authority over illnesses, demons, the elements, food, and possessed wisdom beyond our understanding. As he explained truth even to the religious leaders. Well, the parents of the children being brought to Jesus believed that he had the power and the authority over everything. So they brought their children to Jesus believing he was who he said he was. And they brought their children to Jesus to be dedicated that's what is referred to here in blessing. It's, it's a dedication. They wanted their children to be blessed by the Lord, to be set aside for His glory. 
This morning, we begin with the time when parents brought their children to Jesus to bless them. But the children that they were being that were being brought to the Lord by the parents, it was the parents that the disciples took it upon themselves to address them. The disciples stepped in, and they were rebuking the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. But they had it wrong. Instead, Jesus rebukes the disciples and explains the connection of having the faith of a child and the kingdom of God. And then we move on beyond that to an example of this very thing with a man who had everything. He had great possessions, but he failed to have the greatest possession. He did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He did not have a salvific relationship with God. You know, as we move on from today and next Sunday, we will cover what I would see as the second part to this, because what this does, even the second part, what we have here as far as the rich young man, is we have that portion, that event, give Jesus an opportunity to also teach his disciples about what seemed to be impossible with man. And he explains to them, what's impossible with man? No, it's possible with God. And it is God who makes it possible. So we'll see what all this means as we work through this section. What God desires that we possess eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's first go over the first portion, verses 13 through 16, the faith of a child. Again, we read, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Again, as we learned a few minutes ago, we see here how parents were bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. And what they're doing here is described actually in the original language as an act of dedication. Much like people would bring an offering to the Lord. It was a a moment of worship. Their children bringing them and offering them to God. And it wasn't just, just touch them, bless them, say prayer over them. It was a, as any sacrifice would be, it would be a complete offering. Devoting our kids to the Lord is something that we are familiar with. We practice that here at Refuge. We have child dedications. You know, as you come to the Lord, you realize, so as parents, we have a great responsibility, as we heard earlier in the announcements. We are to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, teaching them scripture. We ought to be like young Timothy's mother and grandmother, teaching them sound doctrine. But we have the practice, we we practice something here of dedicating our kids to the Lord. Parents choose to dedicate their children to the Lord, committing themselves as stewards of these little little lives, to lead them in the way of the Lord, according to his word. Another example of this can be seen in 1 Samuel, when Hannah dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord and, and committed him, devoted him to his service. And so we know, according to scripture, this was a good thing that they were doing. But the disciples that were with Jesus thought it was a a, a waste of his time. It's really what they were saying as they rebuked the parents of these children. But what's important is, what what does God think of this? What does the Son of God say? Well, when Jesus saw what they were doing, he was described as... His response, he was indignant. 
That's how Jesus responded. He was indignant because of what the disciples were doing, rebuking the parents of these children. He was annoyed. He was angry. He was upset. In fact, we can read his words a bit differently, knowing how it was that he responded, the emotions that he felt. Let the children come to me. It wasn't, oh, if you don't mind, guys, you know, just let them come through. I don't want to upset you. I don't want to offend you. No, he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. I think the manner in which he said it was very sharp. After all, he was indignant. How do you speak when you're indignant? Softly? Gently? No. We don't, do we? Should we expect that of Jesus? No, he's described as being indignant. We need to note how Jesus responded because often people seem to think that to be like Jesus is to always respond to things in an emotionless, passionless, stoic, unemotional manner. But here we see Jesus respond with great passion. It was a fiery response, enthusiastic, red hot. He was indignant toward his own disciples. You know, as parents, have you ever been indignant toward your children? Annoyed? Upset? Angry? Oh no, we, we don't ang get angry toward our children, right? What is your tone? Volume? Do you at that point just not love them? That's it, Johnny, you're out of here. I hate you. No, you don't say that, right? No, we're, we're annoyed, upset, we're angry. This is a, a righteous anger that is being demonstrated, that is being shown so that we can communicate to them that's not right. No, I said that's not right. No, that's not right. Right? It's called discipline. It's training a child. Otherwise, they think they can do whatever they want, right? And then we're not being good stewards of them. Later on in life, they'll think that anything goes. Is that what Jesus wanted to do with his disciples? No. The most loving thing that Jesus could do was communicate to them what was unacceptable, what was not true, to teach them. Because this didn't mean that he dismissed them as his disciples. Failure out. Okay? Someone else is going to take your spot. That's it. We're done with you. No, no, no. But in the moment, he wanted to make sure they understood they were wrong. They were wrong in what they were doing. And then Jesus did what was right and true. And as the children were coming to him, he, didn't, he said what he said. And I, I can just picture, it doesn't say it in scripture, but I can just picture him. Let him through. Bring him to me. Because he was saying these things to them as he was bringing the children in. He said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Have you made up your own way to heaven? I know the world has. 
You want to go to heaven on your own terms? It doesn't work that way. It just does not work that way. Have you made up your own definition of salvation? Are you the one that's going to dictate to God how it is that he is to let you into heaven? So many people have. And Jesus says it very plainly. Very, very plainly. It's not difficult to understand. In fact, if you were to explain this to a five-year-old, I bet you they'd understand. Do you expect your children, five, seven, to understand plain language like this? I know you do. The reason why I do know that, that you expect them to understand plain language like this is because they get disciplined if they don't understand plain language like this, right? He said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. At this time, if you were one of those disciples, would you at this point be paying attention? Right? Now you're, you're leaning in. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. If our faith is not like one of these children, we will not enter into the kingdom of God. What does he mean by what he just said? I want to know. Do you want to know? And Jesus didn't just say a few words in in an emotionless, passionless, stoic, unemotional manner. But rather the word used for bless again means that Jesus, in what he was doing, he was excited about this. When they came to have their children dedicated, he was passionate about it. He fervently blessed them. Jesus enthusiastically and passionately blessed them. Oh, bring the kids. Please bring the kids. Let's bless them. Let's ask the Lord to to fill them with his spirit, to crown them with wisdom, to set them apart for his use and glory, that they would know what's true and walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the the truth. That's what I pray for all of us and our children. Oh. His dedication of those children was enthusiastic. He was excited about them. These children received Jesus' blessing without acting like they didn't. I, I don't deserve this. Why me? That's, by the way, false humility. When people say this over and over again, it's, it's false humility. These, these kids also did not explain why Jesus, I, I've actually been really good. And so it's no wonder that you're going to bless me. In fact, I deserve so much more. No, none of that, right? They just received the blessing with the simple faith of a child, believing they were blessed. The point is not that children are innocent, because we know they're not. The point is not that they're humble, because we know they're not. The point is that children receive without any consideration as to whether they deserve it or not, have earned it or not. They're not acting with false humility, telling people how they don't have to be given anything. They simply receive what they've been given. They believe. Do we understand and do we possess this kind of belief when it comes to salvation and the kingdom of heaven? Do we look at the word that way? I, I simply receive it as a child. I know that it is true. I stand in the truth. 
I know I'm not deserving of knowing what God's word is, what his truth is, and yet the Lord has revealed it to me through his word, let alone salvation. I'm not worthy of salvation. Who is worthy of salvation? And yet I'm eternally grateful to the Lord for his grace, for his mercy. Simply receive this indescribable gift given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus said these things to the disciples as the children were taken up by Jesus into his arms and he blessed them. But then we go on from there, from that point. In verse 17, it says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these, things, all, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Unwilling to let go. This man is described as being rich. You know, I, I am I am pretty sure that if that rich man were living here in our day today, he would be one amongst rich people. There are so many comforts food at our disposal. I've often thought if, if King Solomon were to walk into one of our local supermarkets, he'd probably be like, wow, what king does this belong to? Just about anything you want, right? In fact, we're kind of at odds because some things we no longer find on our shelves, right? It's very hard. We have to wait. Oh, man, when we have to wait more than three days... A grievance to Amazon. Why is it taking so? You can have it back, right? If you order from Amazon. I don't know if you order from Amazon, but, you know, it's just kind of immediate, right? You have it here. Everything at our disposal. We have cars, plural. We have a roof over our heads. We have all kinds of things at our fingertips. I think that we have great possessions. You know, some people have some extra, what we call toys, right? Well, this man was unwilling to let go. He had great possessions, and he was a man at the same time who observed the law of Moses. And so we could describe this man as as a man who was rich, but he was also very religious. This man went to church from the time he was a, a young lad. Right? Parents probably took him, put him in the nursery. That's what we would know today. Is this, this young man was, was even trained up in the way of the Lord. He knew God's word. Forwards and backwards. He just he knew it. But he had great possessions. He was, you could say that he was a blessed man. He had much to steward. Well, Jesus continued on his path to Jerusalem. Keep in mind where Jesus was going. Remember that he had set his face to Jerusalem. And he knew exactly what he was going for. And on his way, after he left the children, after he had 
addressed the disciples and rebuked them for rebuking the parents of these children. Now they're on the path going to Jerusalem. And this man runs up. He runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and asks him a question. Well, by all outward appearances, this all looks good, right? After all, he did run to Jesus. He did fall before him. He knelt before him. Is that all that's necessary? Is just the initial action of a man who does that? No. Not even now. There's something beyond that. Because so far, so good. It appears as if this man has approached Jesus in a humble manner. And then this man goes even to the lengths of calling him a good teacher. He knows the lingo. Right? We may know what we can consider to be Christianese. We know the lingo. We sound great. But is it genuinely who we are? This man approached Jesus in a humble manner. This man calls Jesus good teacher. By the way, this implies sinlessness, blamelessness. That's what this implies. No other rabbi in that time was addressed in this manner. None, zero. Because they all knew what it meant. This was not a title or a term, again, used to describe or address the rabbis of the day. And so, first, Jesus asked this man why he was calling Jesus good. When he, and he said this, no one is good except God alone. But we see here that this man said this, but didn't know what he was saying or who he was addressing. Because he also asked this one question. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. What must I do? Did you all do anything for your eternal life? No. You see, a person can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one. It's the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Do you believe that? Not your doing. It's his doing. Jesus moved on from this, but Jesus also wanted this man, and he didn't address this in further detail or anything like that, but he wanted the man to think about what he just said. Who was before this man? Why he had addressed Jesus in this manner? He wanted him to think about that. When we address Jesus, do we reflect on who we are addressing? When we pray, do we think about who we are approaching and what we are saying? Do we know Jesus? We may pray all we want. And I know, I, I know people that say, oh, I pray all the time. Who are you praying to? It matters. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know how to approach the Lord? In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Jesus did not tell this man that he was wrong. Note that. He was just wanting him to understand what he was saying. Because he is indeed the good teacher. He is a good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. 
He just simply wanted him to know who he was addressing. Do you know, when you pray, when you seek the Lord, who you're addressing, it's important. Jesus went on to tell this man what he already knew about himself. Or what, what he thought he knew about himself. What he thought about himself. He said, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. And he goes on to say, do not murder. This man knew this. Do not commit adultery. Check, he knew that too. Do not steal. Okay, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. That's what his response was to Jesus as he said these things. He just listed a few of the Ten Commandments. He said, I've kept them all. Listen, this guy may have been a pretty decent person in society. Uh, by all of the friends and neighbors that he had, all the people that he did business with, perhaps they all thought of him as, yeah, he's a pretty de decent person. You know, he possesses some moral integrity. But the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, is that good enough to earn us a spot in heaven? Is that what determines salvation? Did he really observe the law perfectly? Well, again, as we normally do, we go to Scripture for that, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell a fire. A bit more strict, right? As far as the requirement of observing the law or keeping it. Verse 27 of chapter 5, Matthew 5. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you can go ahead and flip that also. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in her heart. Same thing. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we should strive for that, right? Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Walk in righteousness. So with that standard... Anyone righteous in here? Has anyone kept the law? No. Not even this, this very religious man. At that point, of course, we understand he hasn't kept the law. But Jesus knew that this man genuinely thought that his strict he was genuine. He was sincere. The sincerity or genuineness of belief prove that we are true and that we are right? No. 
We can be genuinely and sincerely wrong. Because Jesus knew this man genuinely thought that his strict religious observance of the law in a traditional way was enough to earn him a spot in heaven. Did Jesus argue with him? No, he discerned at that very moment. This wasn't a point to argue with him. You can have it. Didn't argue with him on this point. But instead, Jesus shifted to what really matters. Okay. If that's what you believe. I'll give you this. Are you willing to leave all for the sake of following me? All. Sell everything that you have and come follow me. Are you willing to do that? In other words, not only trust Jesus for salvation, but then trust in him for everything. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Hey, listen, even Paul confessed that he thought he was righteous and blameless in observing the law according to Philippians 3.6. He, he believed that, right? Sincerely. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Keep that in mind as you see the events unfolding in the world. Right? But we know how it ends. We know what comes next. Don't be unmoved. Don't be frightened. But this is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Simple, right? And yet are we like the rich young man who isn't willing to lose his life for the sake of finding it in Christ? Do you have too great of possessions? Notice that when Jesus said this, when he addressed this man, he didn't say it in a condescending manner. He didn't say this with anger in his heart. Remember, he addressed his disciples with anger with righteous indignation. He did not address this man in that way. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Was he, at that point, a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, he, he loves each and every one of us. From the time of inception to the time we go home, if we're believers to him, he loves us all the way through. He loved this man. He looked at him with love. Because we know that God wishes that none should perish. None should perish. At that very moment, Jesus didn't want to prove a point. He wanted to win the man. At that very moment, he, he desired for him to be willing to forsake all. Forsake all. I leave it all to demonstrate to you, to yield myself to you, to completely surrender my life to you and follow you all the days of my life. If I have nothing of this life, I have everything in Jesus Christ. Jesus. 
And that is why Jesus looked at this man with love. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Told him, go, go sell all. It's worthless. You're going you're gonna to die and go to hell with all your stuff. It's not even going to go with you. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. That's what he said. And then, and then it says here, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Are your possessions considered by you so great that you're not willing to part with them in order to follow Jesus? You're not willing to be his disciple. What it means to what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It means forsaking all, lo- loving him above all, drawing close to him, loving him, loving his people, being obedient to his word. Like Jesus said that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But it says, we don't pick and choose what we what we know is truth. What do we follow as commandments? Well, we are to be students of the word and know that. It's your responsibility. It's your individual responsibility to know that. Are you reading the word every day? Are you growing closer to him? Are you learning? Are you being sanctified? Are you coming under the leadership, the governance, and the teaching of the word? That's what demonstrates that you belong to him and that you love him. Growing in your knowledge of God's word, therefore you know how to be obedient. Like, I want to know how to be obedient to the Lord, so I'm going to go through scripture time and time again. I will never exhaust the word of God in, in my growth in knowledge and understanding. Go through it once. I've already gone through it once. So that's it? Put it off to the side? Dust it off. Open it up. Draw close to him. Notice that Jesus offered this man something. He said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And what does he say after that? And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Is there treasure here on earth comparable to the treasure in heaven? We will see. Every single person will come to understand that. Jesus offered this man treasure in heaven, but this man preferred treasure on earth. He loved his possessions more than God, and in the end, it was his idolatry that he preferred and based his contentment in life on earthly possessions and not in his faith in God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul learned how to be content in all states of life. This man quit pursuing Jesus at that very moment. He quit pursuing eternal life also along with that, rejecting Jesus and what he said, being disheartened by what was required of him to love God more than anything and anyone. Mark chapter 12 verse 28 says, and one of the, the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Can you imagine Jesus was telling him, hey, you answered pretty good, but you're not there yet. 
How many of us would answer correctly, we're not there yet. I I don't want to give anyone the false impression that you're saved just because you've said a prayer and, and yet you have no fruit whatsoever in your life. I do not want to give you the false impression that just that prayer, that was it. You may have, you may not have been in that very moment in genuine surrender to Jesus Christ, him as Savior and Lord, because time proves what a tree actually is, right? The fruit that the tree is bearing is what the tree actually is. Is there any fruit? I know I was surprised the other day when my plum tree, I was told that it was a Santa Rosa, right, plum and they give off these, these, uh, this fruit that is uh, kind of purple in color, right? Purplish, reddish. Are you guys okay? <laughs> All right. And so I started seeing these little yellow balls on there. And, and I thought, well, that's weird. It's like, it, it may not be good this year. This is bad fruit. And so... I didn't pick it, but then they started dropping, and my neighbor looked over, and he goes, oh, that's a different type of plum. I'm like, I didn't know. Like, what kind of plum is this? They told me it was a Santa Rosa, and apparently, look it up, it's some tree that apparently uh, only should grow in France. I'm like, wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> and it's pretty good. It still has a, a pit inside of it. But, you know, I found out that it was still a plum tree. You know when? When I started giving the fruit. I was like, ah, oh, it is a plum tree. It's a different type of plum, but it is a plum tree. You know how you can know if, it's, if a tree is an apple tree or not? By the fruit it bears, right? An orange tree? And we can go on, right? It's the same with us. So please, please just, just inspect yourself. Am I showing any fruit whatsoever? Or I am, am I at constant odds with the Lord? Am I always arguing with him, trying to justify my stance? Have you truly yielded to the Lord? His governance, his authority, his word, period. Have you approached him with the faith of a child and simply receive? Because this rich man fell short and he went away sorrowful. Don't go away sorrowful. Forsake all. For the sake of finding the Lord, knowing him and knowing salvation through him. The rich man should have known what we just read in Mark chapter 12 and responded to Jesus accordingly, but he didn't. He wasn't willing to love God more than his possessions, and he went away sorrowful. Great possessions. But have you have possession of what is greatest of all? Do you have salvation in Jesus Christ? Because the question here this morning is how about you? How do you respond? That's really what matters. It's not just another story to tell. Oh, we heard this beautiful story this morning. That message, Pastor, it was good. Hey, I, I, quite honestly, it it's, has nothing to do with me. I, I hope always that you understand. I try and get out of the way. I just, I'm just delivering the word of God. What matters most is, is this taking effect in your heart? With this, do you believe you're a pretty decent person? I've done much in society. Do you really believe that you've earned your spot in heaven? That somehow the Lord owes you something? Listen, it doesn't work that way. Because no one has kept the law perfectly. It's quite simple. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need a Savior. There's salvation in no one else, for there's another name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is, is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says we shall be saved. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Each and every one of you are loved so much by God, and he demonstrated it by sending his son to die on the cross for you, to pay for your sins in full. Are you willing to forsake all and place your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that salvation and eternal life is only known in a relationship with Jesus? Because that's really all that matters, that you know this personally and that you have simply received it. Father, as we close our eyes and bow our heads and closing this morning, Father, I do pray that perhaps there's conviction that's come upon a heart or two this morning. We confess we have great possessions, but there's no greater possession than Jesus Christ. To know him as Savior and Lord I pray, Lord, that this morning, Lord, there be a confession of that. Lord, you desire that none should perish. I know your heart grieves for people who are unwilling. For this rich young man who went away sorrowful, Lord, I have 100% knowledge that I understand it grieved your heart. I ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that we would not believe as this person did, that we've been religious, we've done a few things, and therefore... We have a place with you, Lord. May we be willing to forsake all, Lord, to love you above all. No matter who, no matter what, that we allow nothing to stand in our way. But Lord, that we would realize that even if we have nothing in this world and on this earth, Lord, we possess everything with you. Lord, we have eternal life. Lord, we have treasure in heaven. Glory awaits us. And we can genuinely say, just as the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, Father, move in the hearts of your people. Move in the people who are sitting here today and perhaps watching online. Lord, the days are getting darker. They're getting shorter. Chaos is in abundance wickedness is overwhelming the world there will come a time when we do not have an opportunity to simply yield ourselves to you I pray that this would be the day of salvation that we would yield our pride to you Lord and that we would humble ourselves before you lead us to salvation with your mercy, your kindness. Let us keep in mind the demonstration of your love in the shedding of your son's blood on the cross for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.